and welcome to another full episode of Horror 4H. I know, I'm surprised too. I know it's been a while, so thank you for sticking with me. Physical and or mental health is not my forte, but I have powered through both yesterday to write and record this episode, so I really hope you enjoy it. We'll start with the social media basics. You can find us on Facebook if you just search for Horror 4H. That's the word horror, the number 4 and the letter H, all one word. I believe we're the only Horror 4H on there. Uh, in fact, yes, I checked, and it is. there is a Horror 4 Hope that pops up, but that's not me, although that's, that, that raises some questions. There's a few 4H things that pop up as well that have the word terror in the title, but we are the only Horror 4H. Same thing happens on Twitter. Just search Horror 4H and you'll find me very quickly. That's also how you can find me on SoundCloud, which is the site I use to host this podcast. And if you have friends that only listen on other sites, I can also be found on iTunes as well. Same thing, just search Horror 4H. I like to keep things simple for you. And myself. Mostly myself. Now, the last few short episodes I've put out, I'd like to keep doing and make regular things. So here's where I tell you to email me. All lowercase... All one word, the word horror, the number four, the letter H, at gmail.com. Email me. I do not hear from you people nearly enough. Rarely do I get any tweets, emails, or posts on the page on Facebook, and that makes me a bit sad, honestly. I like interacting with you guys, whether it's just a joke about the jokes, to suggest movies you want me to watch, or anything else. I urge you to reach out and engage. It makes me want to do this more, and the more I want to do this, the more likely I will do this, and then the more you get to hear, so it all works out. But in regards to the short episodes, I only have a finite amount of creepy experiences that I can share, so I'm gonna need you to write in with your creepy experiences. They don't have to be paranormal, though. Anything at all is acceptable. Ghosts, hauntings, Bigfoot sightings, other cryptids, phone calls from the dead, glitches in reality, my favorite, honestly. Stalkers, weird phone calls or text messages, UFOs, literally anything creepy that's happened to you, I want to hear and share with everyone else. Write out the experience and email it to me with the word story in the subject line and I will read it and comment on it. You can also tell me in the email how you would like to be referred to. If you don't tell me, I will just simply use your first initial. And, and don't think someone else is going to send in so you don't have to. So far, I've only gotten one story from a listener, and I crave more, you guys. Even if it's just mildly unsettling, that's good enough. Get the ball rolling. I'd love it if you contributed a bit more. But on the same token, if all you do is listen and enjoy, that is more than enough, and I cannot thank you enough for it. Just knowing that at least one person out there is getting some laughs from me is enough. But I'd really like to know if it's more than just one, and I'd like to know what you like, don't like, etc. And if you really want to show some support, head on over to the Patreon page, uh, patreon.com, and then, you guessed it, search for Horror 4H. If you've got some extra money and feel generous, then donate as much as you want. Anyone donating will have a special thank you in the occasional episodes and a very personal thank you from me. And speaking of, Brian is still the only person who's done so. He's pretty much paid for the podcast to stay on SoundCloud for the foreseeable future in such a way that you can listen to all the previous episodes instead of just the most recent few. So, not only am I saying thank you to him, but you all should too. Okay, well, that's enough of that. This episode is a first for Horror 4H. Episode 3 was a lovely little piece of garbage called Slumber Party Massacre. As you well may or may not remember, I mentioned that movie was part of a series. That's right. Today's episode is Slumber Party Massacre 2, our first sequel. 
So sit back, relax, and enjoy bad horror through someone else's eyes. Slumber Party Massacre 2, 1987. Well, we're opening with some almost softcore porn sounding music and close-up shots of, I'm assuming, a woman in bed. Lots of almost nudity shots, but basically no actual ones. I'm betting to save that for 5 or 10 minutes in. The music is actually at this point more akin to a shot involving baby kittens being adorable than creepily watching a woman sleep, but hey, okay. Oh, the woman is dreaming of a shirtless guy running and catching a football. Oh no, now she's running down the hallway. <gasps> a shot of a woman's stomach opened up from a drill wound. And the pizza delivery guy with no eyes. Someone being stabbed repeatedly. And a girl opening a door to her throat being slashed by a drill. Wait, those were all scenes from the first Slumber Party. Ma oh, okay, I see. That's how they're connecting two movies. Maybe there's more of a connection? Let's watch and see. Okay, she woke up screaming, and the title appears on the screen, Slumber Party Massacre, in all capital letters, 2. I would have actually paid money to watch this if they would have called it Slumber Party Massacre 2, The Reslumbering, but did they? No. So fun fact, though, this entire series of movies were all directed by women. In fact, it was the first horror series entirely directed by women, and the first two movies were also written by women. So despite some cliche 80s gratuitous nudity and a few other seemingly chauvinistic bits, these movies were actually fairly feminist-inspired and helped further solidify women as an important part of the horror genre and the filming community as a whole. This has been your feminist-friendly paragraph from Horror 4H. Remember, kids, women can do anything just as well as men. Or any other gender. All genders are equal. Horror 4H fully supports equal rights. Go equality! Now, back onto the bloodshed. Okay, oh shit, so I know my whole thing here is to not take the movie seriously, but I really won't be able to take this one seriously. Crystal Bernard is the primary protagonist. She is a great actress, so that's that's not what this is about. Uh, but I can only think of her as Helen on Wings. Wings was a fantastic TV show, by the way. And if you haven't seen it, you should. And if you had, I don't know, you should, you should watch a few more episodes. It was, it was always a pretty funny show. Mom is making breakfast and telling the girl, who we will find out shortly is Courtney, about how dreaming about it all is normal and that's how your mind deals with it. And that's why Valerie has problems. Dun, dun, dun. Valerie and Courtney, if you remember, are the two, two of the survivors from the first movie. They were the next-door neighbors of the Massacre Bunch. Fun little fact, Crystal Bernard looks literally nothing like Jennifer Myers, who played Courtney in the first movie. I mean, like, nothing. There is no physical way Jennifer Myers could have aged into Crystal Bernard. None. Anyways. Mom wants to set up another appointment with Dr. Watts, but Cord is basically like, Nah, Mom, it's cool. It's just the same old dream I always have. About that time, Sis and I were almost murdered by a drill-wielding psychopath who we ended up killing. It's cool. I don't know, maybe Mom should have pushed therapy appointment a little bit harder, because right after breakfast, Courtney digs a book out from under her mattress where she keeps newspaper clippings about the murders. Yeah, she's totally over it, and it's, it, everything's fine. It's fine now. Also, she's hiding it under her mattress. Come on, Courtney. Be a little more original than that. She starts jogging in school, and the music is... Honestly, the music is basically a slightly horror-tinged version of the old-school Final Fantasy menu music. Like, legit. It's, it's weird. So she comes across a pigeon in the sidewalk with a hole in its chest, like from a drill bit, dun-dun-dun. And actually, she saw the same pigeon in her dream, so clearly she has gained the ability to see the future from almost being murdered. Makes sense, moving on. Random friend shows up to drive her to school, and they drive off in the opposite direction she was jogging in. Okay, 
whatever, bitching about how mom's being mom, and they sing a song together. Clearly these two are the best friends ever, as they are having so much fun together. Oh hey, random guy in a car behind them isn't actually a random guy in a car behind them. It's Matt, the guy Courtney was dreaming about shirtless before, earlier, uh, you know, before it turned into a murder flash-forward flash-backwards thing. Matt is clearly a high schooler and not in his mid-twenties at all. Mm -hmm. They're all going to meet up after school to watch the girls and their other two friends be in a band and practice. Oh, sweet Jesus, I cannot wait for that. That's going to be some horrible, horrible 80s music. Like, horrible 80s music, here we come. Okay, honestly, it's uh, it's not that bad at all. Like, some of it's... It, it's basically classic to mid-late 80s dark-sounding rock. Uh... Fitting for the scene and for the movie overall. Like, I was expecting total crap, and I was actually sorely mistaken. It's not a bad little song at all. So, cool. Good job. And, uh, jump to an awkward walk with Matt and Courtney. Like, painfully awkward. The girls are all gonna go up to one of their dad's places this weekend. A condo with no parents around, and she invites Matt. Yeah. He calls them bad, bad girls, and she says, No, you must be thinking of some other girls. And cue deadpan, cheesy-ass stare, and... No, I'm thinking of you. <gasps> and cue kiss. Well, he leaves, but not before another quick kiss in front of the girls. So literally all he did was show up to be like, hey, we should kiss. Okay, bye. Man, dates were a lot shorter in the 80s, apparently. Hmm. So Courtney still hasn't made sure her mom is okay with her going up to the condo for the weekend. I bet mom won't be too keen on it, though. Keen. 80s lingo. Nice, right? So she starts to ask mom if she can go, and mom just interrupts with news about Valerie, and how Valerie's talking a little bit now, so mom wants to drive down and see her this weekend, but mom, I wanted to go practice with my friends, and probably make out more with Matt, and mom puts, puts herself in a full bitch mode gear and counters with, so you don't want to see your sister then? Like, Jesus, no, that's not it. Wow, okay, uh, uh, no, but oh, all right. Well, I'm going to have to think about it, which we all know as parents speak for, no, I'm just hoping you'll forget by the time it rolls around. It's an, oh, snap. Courtney pulled the best card you can as a kid with siblings. Sunday is her birthday, and she doesn't want to spend it in a mental hospital. And mom admits she forgot it was her birthday. Wow, Courtney's going to win this fight. Which, honestly, we all knew was going to happen anyways, or she'd just sneak out or something, because you know all of the murdering is taking place at the condo, away from other people, with just the girls, and maybe boyfriends, and no parents. So, okay. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't know Sheila's parents very well, though. Oh, they're great! And then she realizes what she just said and saves it totally with a, but I don't know, they're pretty strict. <laughs> no, they fucking aren't, but that's a nice one. Good job. Matt and her are super excited about it now, talking on the phone, and back to softcore porn music with Matt shirtless, holding a football, and a scene of the girls doing stupid stuff in the car, more hallway running, Courtney hiding under a bed or a couch with leather boots walking by, her and Matt making out, more running, a drill bit, uh, a hand hitting the ground, and guess she's dreaming the future shit again? I don't know. Isn't it sad whenever mutants don't realize that their powers are developing? Like, where's Charles Xavier when you need him? Oh, and she fell back asleep, so that's good. And back to dream of Valerie running through a hallway, screaming for Courtney. And then Valerie telling her directly not to go. Go where? Don't go all the way. Which either means she shouldn't have sex or we're tying in the football Matt was holding earlier. And this is a really obscure Chris Berman reference. I had to Google that shit, by the way. You are welcome. Okay, Valerie is hiding under her bed again. And leather-clad, murdery person guy is dancing next to the bed. I'm thinking David Lynch co-directed this scene. Okay. 
and we see Leather Dude's face, and he screams, Rock and roll never dies, baby, before we see a drill go through someone's chest. And, okay, the girls are leaving for the condo for the weekend. We're off to Murder Town, which is good, because at this point, we are almost 20 minutes into this movie, and so far, there's been no actual massacre, and the slumber party hasn't started. So, yeah. And Rockabilly is playing in the background for... Reasons? Question mark? And Courtney falls asleep and starts dreaming of weird shit again, including the leather dude with a guitar drill. Yes, you heard that right. A guitar drill. Guys, seriously, the murderer might be using a fucking guitar drill. So they stop for snacks or something, and Valerie throws herself against the car, bleeding from her chest, and Courtney screams and wakes up. (laughs) You thought Valerie was actually there? You're a fucking idiot. And they arrive at the condo, which isn't really a condo so much as a small house in a subdivision, and it's cleverly pointed out that it looks like no one else even lives here yet, which means no one around to hear them screaming, or the guitar drill. Jump scare from a blow-up doll that Sheila's brother apparently uses. Okay. And there's a booze closet, so time to booze up. The guys won't get here till tomorrow anyways, so that means we're probably gonna have to wait a whole day for the murders to start. Lame. And bonding time by dancing to loud music together. Oh, hey, it's the guys. They showed up early. And Sheila is grinding on a lamp. Way, way too much. She's really into this lamp. So they all get to do a dance in front of some terrible modern art painting, like each one dances. And uh, the three girls are all just dancing normally. And then Sheila basically just almost rips her shirt off and squeezes her breasts together. I have a very bad feeling for Sheila. I don't think she's going to make it. The guys knock on the door and ring the bell, and the girls keep dancing and drinking. Guess they couldn't hear it because the music is too loud? Or is this a throwback to the first movie where sound couldn't travel correctly? I'm hoping it's that because I don't know if you remember the first one, but I sure as hell do. And I mean, at one point, the guy uses a drill to cut off someone's head in a garage while everyone else is 20 feet away, and no one hears shit. And at another point, he drills the pizza delivery guy's eyes out on the front porch, and and literally no one hears anything either. So clearly, in this universe, this movie series is set in. There are weird sound bubbles, and the physics of sound just are totally fucked. But anyways, back to Sheila being Sheila. Someone opened a champagne bottle and sprayed it all over everyone, because why wouldn't you do that in a brand new house with white carpet? Oh god, holy shit, I am old, aren't I? That was my literal first thought. Jesus. Oh well. And Sheila takes her top and bra off because I'm all wet. So, sorry everyone, I was wrong earlier. It took 25 minutes for gratuitous nudity, not 5 or 10. My bad. And so now, of course, one of the other girls decides that it's hilariously awesome, so she also has to take her shirt off. And apparently now they're using pillows that they're fighting with. One of them busts open, and there's feathers everywhere, and guys are now peeking in through the windows. One of them even says, I didn't know girls really did this stuff, and I'm pretty sure that's because they don't. Uh, I I don't know, though. I've never been to an all-girl slumber party because, you know, if I'm there, it's not an all-girl slumber party. So, mm -hmm. So, ladies, if you've been to a slumber party where, in fact, you do strip down and pillow fight, please tweet me or post it up on the Facebook page or something because, honestly, like, I, I don't buy that that happens. Ever, really. Like, no pervy comments back to you or anything like that. Just pure honest curiosity. Does that shit actually happen? Because I don't think it does. Anyways... One of the guys says, it's because we died and this is heaven. Wait, isn't that almost literally what's said in the first movie verbatim when this almost exact same scenario happened? You know what? I'm going to check, pause, 
and open up Slumber Party Massacre and searching through, okay, I found the scene. Yep, the girls are stripping in front of an open window, talking shit about other girls having sex, and the guys, sure enough, what do we do to deserve this? I think we dad went to heaven. Like, I'm not knocking anyone's kink here or what their religious beliefs are, but really? That's heaven? Just looking at a window through a few topless girls. That's heaven. Guys, get more inventive with your religious fantasies, please. All right, back to the re-slumbering, which is what I'm going to call this movie from now on since it has almost scene-by-scene reshoots from the first one. Seriously, how could they not name it that? Like, I know it's stupid, but it's so stupid that it's fucking brilliant. And, oh, for fuck's sake, slow-motion topless jumping up and down with feathers flying around. It's like if John Woo directed softcore porn. And now Sheila puts her bra back on because I guess feathers and jumping around make it not wet anymore. Okay. And the other girl puts her shirt back on, and I think they're implying they're both shit-faced now. Yes. They hear a noise, which is odd in and of itself, but I bet it's the boys, and is, is this a haunted house? Round of laughter. Did you lock the back door? I thought you did. Ooh, spooky. I don't know. You'd think maybe Courtney, of all people, would be like, guys, that shit's not funny. We should go check it out as a group. Also, we should be locking doors. But instead, Sheila goes off alone. Sadly, this will not result in a bloody horrific murder, but likely in a jump scare from the boys doing something stupid that should result in them never getting laid again, but instead will result in pouting and saying the girls look pretty and then one of them gets laid. And I say all this having never seen this movie, and I am basing it entirely on my previous horror movie experience. So taking bets right now on if I'm right. And betting is closed. Note, Horror 4H is not involved in online or offline gambling, but also does not condemn it. Play responsibly. Of course, she takes a bottle with her, which, you know, that's that's not a bad idea. She takes a swig of it before wielding it as a weapon, which I would actually commend her on if it weren't still half full and she hadn't just started dribbling it everywhere as soon as she wields it as a weapon. That carpet is going to be a bitch to clean. Damn it, Sheila. <sighs> she sees the fridge open, and so, of course, she walks towards it as a corpse with a knife and it flies past her screaming and then another screaming idiot jumps out from behind her and tackles her to the ground and surprise it's the guys you know you girls better learn how to lock the door yeah you never know what sort of immature assholes might sneak in right and they chastise them but the guys thought it was hilarious well of course they would they're typical horror movie high school boys you got a prank with violent shit so when actual violent shit happens inevitably someone thinks it's just a prank and then someone gets killed because of it so our, these two guys are TJ and Jeff, and Matt still isn't there yet. Matt might be a good guy and only show up when he's supposed to the next day. I don't know, maybe in time to fight off the murderer? The murderer with the guitar drill? Especially that weird dance you did as TJ grinds on top of a pen, Sheila. So of course the girls are like, oh my god, you were spying on us topless? You fucking perverts, that's not cool. You need to leave. I'm just kidding. They're actually like, oh, you saw us busted. And they're embarrassed. No. Don't get embarrassed. Get angry. <sighs> oh, well. And cut to two of the girls in bed trying to sleep, but they can't because one of the girls, it's Sheila, according to the sound, is getting the hell fucked out of her. Told you they'd end up getting laid. So I'm going to take a moment to describe the sex sounds. Hers are fairly standard. Oh, God. Oh, yes. Random moans. That's cool. That's fine. Whatever. It's pretty standard. His, though. Like, I don't know how she has sex with this guy for numerous reasons. But he's laughing, and he's basically going, hoo, 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 hoo. It's like if Butthead actually managed to get laid. And fade out. And fade right back into Courtney still not being able to sleep because they're still making sex noises. Alright, whatever. And now she's asleep. And now she's waking up to Matt in bed with her. And they start making out. So I'm guessing this is a dream. 
and wondering if she's gonna wake up to a very confused Sally being like, "Look, I know I'm okay with some friends with benefit shit, but um, I kind of thought you were with Matt." So, I'd, oh no, Matt turned into the leather-clad murder dude, and she falls out of bed screaming as he steps out of the bed and sees Valerie's corpse. Oh, Valerie, I've had Valerie. I'm tired of Valerie. I just want to make love to you. I am you and you are me. Till we go all the way. Hey, baby, love the one you're with. Okay, so that that that, that was all what he said. And uh, his hair is like 1950s greaser style. And now that I can actually see his clothes, so are they. Like, he's wearing an all-black leather outfit. And his leather jacket has the collars flipped up, uh, of course. And those, like, tassel things hanging off the sleeves and the chest. Like, basically, he looks like a coked-up murderous Elvis fucked a goth, heroin-shooting version of George Thorogood, somehow one of them got pregnant, tried to abort, but instead the baby just ended up surviving in a vat of hair oil. And it's this guy. Like, and come on, people. That was that was a solid, impressive burn right there. That was, that was quality work. And so Courtney wakes up in the middle of the kitchen, confused, because, you know, she didn't fall asleep in the kitchen. And cut to the pool. Courtney and Amy are hanging out, talking about how Courtney has been having bad dreams. By the way, earlier... Uh, the girls mentioned Valerie, and Courtney lied and said she was at uh, college. But Amy, the one who picked her up in the car, obviously knows the truth because, uh, yeah, now we're going to have a confidential conversation about all this. So, back to your regularly scheduled riffing. I thought you were over all that. Right. Because, you know, seeing several brutal murders when you're 12 and your sister having a mental breakdown and going to a mental institution because of it is stuff you just get over within five years. Have some juice and you'll feel better. Yeah, juice helps pre with predictive nightmares. Hmm. Court tells her that the, about the nightmares in detail, and Amy tries to chalk it up to subconscious projection because she read a book from a doctor. Um, so, quick thing. Subconscious projection is, is not a real thing. There is a thing called psychological projection where you see your faults in others because you refuse to see them in yourself. Like if Amy had suddenly started thinking, man, Courtney is a really terrible friend who doesn't take her friend's mental illness seriously. That, that would be projection. You know, these are the kind of dreams you have when you drink too much. Uh, yeah, well, oh, now that we have that figured out, we know that Courtney's just been chugging booze every night before bed. Problem solved. She just doesn't need to drink anymore. Uh. And the guys join in with TJ jumping into the pool with the blow-up doll I mentioned earlier because... Nothing says fun like using the sex doll your girlfriend's brother has fucked to swim with. Wait. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, TJ says, hey, let's go skinny dipping. <laughs> he seriously does that laugh. And then when everybody's like, no, he gets overly aggressive and upset. But wait, one of the girls is missing. Maybe she's getting murdered. I mean, if so, at least she'd be out of this terrible movie. Courtney says she has a terrible headache and TJ says he can fix it. Oh, God. He has her stand up and starts rubbing her neck, which can help with a headache, but I have a sneaking suspicion he's either going to cop a feel or throw her into the pool. Or both, actually. Okay, yep, he grabs her head forcefully and spouts some stupid religious-sounding bullshit before wrapping his arms around her right at boob level, I might add, called it. And then, as she tells him to stop and everyone else tells him to stop, he says something about, like, demons be gone, and throws her into the pool. Called that, too. Damn, I'm good. Or this movie is just really fucking telegraphed. And in the pool, she goes unconscious or something and flashbacks to the night before drill guitar murder man playing sick riffs on the guitar. And she isn't surfacing, so Jeff jumps in because he at least doesn't want her to die. So that's nice of him. 
Courtney freaks out, and so Amy and Sheila are basically right in her face screaming, You're gonna be fine! You're gonna be fine! You just swallowed some water! It's okay! Guys, she almost drowned. The water went into her lungs, not her ears. There's no need for the volume. TJ says, Oh, sorry about that. How's your headache? <laughs> God, I can't wait for this fucking guy to be murdered. Like, it, it cannot happen soon enough. And Court and Sally are talking about how Sally thinks she's getting a pimple. Okay. And it's time for lunch. Yay, the guys are serving it. Great. They start reading a porn book that Sally had in the car from her brother. And then Sheila says that Sally got it from her dad. So either they already aren't paying attention to the script that they wrote, or they're actually trying to create some dimensions for Sheila. Either way, it's bad. Uh, and Courtney is eating a hand sandwich. You heard that right, by the way. Not a ham sandwich. It's a human hand covered in blood between bread, and she just noticed it. Minor freak out and scream, and she explains it away as her burger being weird. Oh, and then a creepy laugh that almost sounds like the opening laugh from Wipeout happens. So either they're really trying to underscore the musical references in this movie, or they just don't care, and I'm betting it's the latter of the two. So, oh, hey, the band's finally practicing. You know, the whole reason they came up here in the first place. So... In the version of the movie I'm watching, the songs have been cut out. I'm guessing for either copyright reasons or to avoid the algorithms catching that this is a full movie, so I have to find another version of the film or clips every time they stop to do a song. So you're welcome for my dedication. And this particular song is more upbeat than the first number they did and is way more of a classic 80s fare. And honestly, it isn't, it isn't as good as the first one, but it's not terrible. It's also interspersed with clips of them doing other fun activities like washing a car in bathing suits. Why, wait, why would you, why would you wash a car on your vacation weekend? Whatever. Or TJ taking the clothes off the blow-up doll in the pool and wrestling with it. Yeah. Okay, and Courtney longingly staring at a picture of Matt that she just happens to have with her. That's, uh, that's weird. They just started dating like two days ago and she has a picture of him. And she's, like, almost kissing it and clutching it to her chest like they've been together for years. That's not creepy or weird at all. Okay, and TJ is reading the smut book to Sheila and romantically asks, You in the mood yet? Not now. It should be not ever. Uh, should, should just be not ever. So TJ can't read very well at all and flips between butthead or surfer dude accent. And I honestly can't tell which one he was trying for. I think he was confused too. And they start doing it on the lounge by the pool. And again, TJ shouldn't get any sex, but okay. And Courtney opens the fridge and a chicken jumps out at her, sticks to her stomach and starts spewing blood out of its neck. Yeah, that, that just happened. Uh, so she gets a few people and tells them how... I know it sounds crazy, but, you know, this chicken just attacked me, and they get in the kitchen, and, yep, there's a chicken on the floor, a normal, non-jumping-around, bleeding chicken. So, of course, Jeff and Amy laugh at her and put the chicken back in the fridge. Wait, ew. Guys, no. And Amy is very clearly holding a Diet Pepsi. Better just keep drinking that Diet Pepsi. Hey, did you guys know Diet Pepsi is delicious? They all chalk it all up to uh, drinking too much, and, you know, it's a hangover. That's why she's having all this crazy stuff happen to her. And guys, I've, I've had, I've, I've likely had alcohol poisoning once. So, uh, fun fact about that. If you chug an entire half gallon of Bacardi Hurricane, delicious beverage, I might add, uh, though it is absolutely nothing like an actual mixed drink. 
that's called a hurricane, and then do a shots contest right after that and polish off a fifth of Captain Morgan tattoo, which is probably the smoothest and most delicious rum I've ever had outside of Appleton Estates, you might black out and wake up the next day covered in your own vomit with a broken shower curtain rod and almost completely unable to move without your head wanting to explode. But... Even that won't cause you to think a dead chicken is attacking you and bleeding everywhere. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it isn't the hangover at all. So Sally is trying real hard to write that uh, big hit that's going to make him famous, and she, she needs to work on it harder, frankly. Courtney is talked into taking a nice hot bath to fix everything, and on the way to the bathroom here, Sheila and TJ just going at it again. Seriously, TJ gets way too much sex for being an inconsiderate asshole. In the bath... Court hears the laugh again, and blood starts pouring from the faucet and is overfilling the bath while Guitar Drill Man starts playing some crazy riffs again. And she runs out of the bathroom, blood pours out from under the door, she runs down and grabs Sally to see, and of course there's no blood, but the bathtub is overflowing with just, you know, regular water, because uh, the faucet's on. And I love, like, Sally gets upset about there being water everywhere, yet no one gave a shit the night before about the champagne being everywhere. Go figure. To Court's credit, she starts to lie about what happens before basically breaking down, and, and Sally's like, are you on drugs? And a solid response, I wish I was. Honestly, that's something I would say at that point. Like, God, I wish I was on drugs, then I wouldn't be freaking out about freaking out. And Sally tries to make jokes about her face and the pimple again, which was effective the first time, but this time, not so much. It kind of just makes you look like an insensitive asshole. Uh, plus, then Courtney hallucinates that there's a giant pulsating boil on Sally's face, and that suddenly kind of turns her face into some kind of Cronenberg monster, and, uh, the boil explodes all over Courtney with the laughing happening, and Courtney runs down the stairs to tell Matt, oh, hey, Matt's here, uh, that Sally is dead in the bathroom. So Matt and TJ and Jeff all go in, because this is your job for men! And, of course, there's no dead Sally in the bathroom, or... In the, there's no live Sally in the bathroom either. So Matt asks if uh, TJ gave her any drugs, because of course TJ would be the one to have drugs. And TJ, in classic TJ fashion, says, I think she's been taking too many diet pills. Hey, she's ruining my weekend, man. And at least Jeff tells him to shut up. And Jeff and TJ start getting into a fight, and Matt's basically like, guys, chill. Which somehow works. And then they're all in the kitchen, except Sally, and Court's all, I'm not crazy, I'm not, it happened and I heard him laughing. Because if there's one way to prove to your friends that you're not crazy, it's to talk about how the murder man from your dreams made your friend's face explode while laughing from nowhere. Perfectly sane explanation. Matt believes she saw something. And at least Sheila asked the important question right now, which is, okay, so where is Sally? Because Sheila looked around and couldn't find her anywhere, and all the cars are still there. And you know it's serious when even Sheila tells TJ to grow the fuck up. And then she ruins the seriousness that she had whenever Matt suggests calling the cops. And her response is, anyone got any tranks? Because when you call the cops and you're going to have them show up, you got to be nice and high first. Mm. Courtney's going to go lie down, but not before noticing the trash compactor is on. And it starts making crunching noises. And then one of them says, no, I don't know. It's been on since they came downstairs. Okay, but it's just now making the no okay whatever and courtney faints and cut to the cops being there so did they not open the trash compactor all right I, I guess that's fair wait for the cops or wait for r2 to stop it either or star wars reference for the win so the cops sum it all up nicely sally's face exploded you haven't seen her since you think she's gonna be in the trash compactor and you're too scared to look and during the questioning sally walks in through the front door and the cops basically tell them they don't care what the fuck you're taking, but basically don't call again because, you know, fuck you guys. Sally apparently went to the store to get more oxy and wait, what the 
kind of store just sells you oxy. Like, I know the opioid crisis is a ways away, but, but like, seriously. What? I don't think you could just walk into a store back then, just, like, go to the store and buy oxy. Whatever. So Jeff, Sally, TJ, Sheila, and Amy are all going to go grab food while Matt and Courtney hang out. And Matt bought her a birthday cake. Oh, that's so sweet. Aren't you going to make a wish? Oh, God, she's going to say it already came true. Yep. She says, I already got my wish. And the candles are still going full force on this cake. Like, it's going to be wax before they eat it. And, oh, Matt, you must think I'm crazy. No, I don't think you're crazy. I think something bad happened when you were little and your crazy friends brought it all back. Okay, so apparently Matt knows what happened because the family whose house it happened in are good friends with Matt's parents. Also, how the fuck does everyone not know about this? Like, they all go to the same high school as Valerie and the other girls that this all happened at. Uh, and it, it's only been five years. Everyone would know. Hell, Courtney would probably catch shit every day. She'd have a nickname like Crazy Courtney or something stupid like that. Oh, well. So they start making out, and those candles are still burning. Mm-hmm. That bed's gonna be on fire soon. And the gang busts back into the house, and they're gonna play music while, I'm, I'm gonna say, being drunk and or high. So back to Matt and Courtney in the bed making out. Uh, we can't hear the people downstairs loudly and drunkenly playing music. So that answers that question from earlier. This is the same universe as before, and there are just weird little bubbles where sound doesn't work right. Got it. Not weird at all in this world. Okay. Uh-oh, I think Matt and Courtney are going to go all the way. Oh, no. I bet Matt's the killer. Also, they never showed her blowing out the candles. So seriously, that place is going to burn fucking down. And, and she looks to Matt and says, Matt, I've never... And then suddenly the killer jumps onto the screen and says, Gone all the way, before laughing like crazy. And then Courtney jumps out of bed screaming as we see a drill push through Matt's chest, spraying blood all over her. And it wasn't just a drill, you guys. It was a guitar drill! So she starts screaming at him that he's, he's just a dream. You're just a dream! And he picks up an obviously fake arm, like... How the, okay, how the fuck did drilling through a guy's chest make his arm fall off? Whatever. So he picks up an obviously fake arm and says, Does this look like a dream to you? I mean, yeah, it actually kind of does. But okay. He throws the arm behind him and it lands on this still-lit birthday cake, which means they decided to put it on the table off the bed, still lit, while they fucked. That's just irresponsible. Like, they'd have gotten too busy getting busy to notice if it caught fire to something else, so practice safe sex, kids. Don't have lit fires going while you're going. So she runs out of the room. We still can't hear the band playing. And then we cut to them. And one of them says, did you hear something? But only because at this point, Courtney is literally falling down the stairs, screaming at them. And that's like right next to them. Uh, you know, don't worry. The bubble wasn't burst at all. They could only hear her because she was literally right next to them. And up the stairs is still completely silenced compared to everything else. So we're fine. And Leather Guy jumps down the stairs behind her with the blood guitar drill, and holy shit, they actually all react to him. TJ steps up and is like, back off, punk, <laughs> before assaulting him with a regular non-drill guitar. He fails, obviously, and is on the floor, and guitar drill telegraphs his moves more than the lines I predicted earlier. Like, it looks like when they were doing the practice fight, and, and saying like, okay, so when we do this for real, we're going to do this at normal speed. But for this rehearsal, everybody just go at like half speed so no one gets hurt, okay? And then at the last moment, they were like, yeah, let's use the rehearsal footage instead. Because Guitar Guy misses TJ by a mile. Yet for some reason, when TJ gets to his feet, his leg is bleeding, bleeding profusely. Okay, 
So Drill Guy is all, it's party time, kitties! And Jeff shoves the lamp at Guitar Drill, which is somehow effective. And everyone except Sally runs into the kitchen where someone is trying to call the cops. But Sally's just standing behind her drum kit. So yeah, sorry, I, I don't think Sally's going to make it out of this scene alive. Uh, revving the Guitar Drill. I, I honestly want to know how that works. Okay, and Sally does run across the open hallway that she could have just ran into and into, like, another room at the very least. But instead, just keeps running right past the open hallway and smack into a corner, so she deserves the drill that she's about to get in the chest. And through the wall, where the phone is. So now the phone is destroyed. Good aim on the guitar drill guy's part. Alright, so Sheila and TJ kept running out of the kitchen. They're running outside with TJ something like, He got me! He got me! And honestly, I think, despite every problem I have with this movie so far, like, who the fuck is Guitar Drill Guy? How the fuck does Guitar Drill even work? Why the fuck did they go Supernatural instead of Son of the Original Killer or something like that? By the way, the easy answer to this Supernatural Killer thing is it had become all the rage in the mid-80s, especially Dream-inspired ones, because Nightmare on Elm Street came out in 1984, two years after the original Slumber Party Massacre, so it's pretty obvious the writer-slash-director watched Nightmare and borrowed, stole, elements to make this movie trendy instead of taking it in a better direction and keeping it with a non-supernatural killer. That My biggest issue is why the fuck did TJ have to exist in the first place, or at the very least, live this long? He's not dead yet. So they run into the street where they almost get hit by a car, despite being told earlier that no one else really lives out here. Okay. TJ turns around in a circle several times for no reason instead of running, and then finally Sheila drags him away. Cut back to Jeff, Court, and Amy. They're all hiding outside now in the dark, and Amy at least asks, Where did he come from? Well, I was dreaming about him, and then suddenly he was there killing Matt. Oh, well, <laughs> okay. Thank God we cleared all that up. All of my questions are now answered to satisfaction. Thank God. Hmm. So they should make a run for it in the car, but the keys are back inside. So who's going to go back in? Looks like all of them. So they're, they're sticking together. That's actually the smart move. The smartest move would have just been to say, fuck the car and to run off in the pitch black night where Guitar Drill Guy couldn't see any of you. But they didn't do that. So they sneak back in and Jeff grabs the keys off the table and then for some stupid ass fucking reason starts crawling towards where the phone is on the floor, destroyed I might add, and calling for Sally in that, you know, yell whisper thing. Sally! Sally, can you hear me? Dude, really? And he keeps crawling further and further towards the other room and jump scare Sally corpse falls from around the corner and they freak out and get up to run out. And do they run out the door that's literally right behind them, the one they came in, the one that could easily take them outside and they could leave through it and walk around the side of the house. No! They run through the house because just like the first movie, the geography of this house makes no actual sense. In the first movie, it was a garage that kept changing places. Here, it's apparently the lack of routes around the house. You can't go around it, even though we've seen that, yes, you can go around it. You have to go through it, especially when there's a supernatural guitar drill killer on the loose. Duh. So they make it out the front door, and Jeff opens to look outside. Nothing there, and so instead of going, let's go right then, he slams the door, very loudly, I might add, and asks, are you guys ready? All right, one, two, three. I'm going to yell really loud right now, so if the killer can hear us, he'll know what's up. And then they run out the door. I bet the car won't start. Oh, hey, look, the car won't start. And they can't lock the doors either, and oh, oh, wow, actually, okay, the car started. And they're driving away. That was, 
was unexpected. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a minute. One, two, all three of them are in the front seat. Okay, I see what's up. Guitar drill guy's gonna pop out of the back seat and say something like, it's only rock and roll, but I like it, before drilling Jeff through the back of the head or something. Hey, look, sure enough, he pops up his head and says, oh my God, seriously, he pops up and says, this is dedicated to the one I love. Okay, so we all know that's an R.E.M. song, but here's the thing. I had to pause this and look this up because I'm that dedicated to pointing out stupid shit for you all. The One I Love was released in August of 1987. Now, you may remember that this movie came out in 1987. Specifically, it was released on October 16th, 1987, which means at most that song had been out a month and a half. So either this movie refilmed this particular scene to throw that reference in, or was written, filmed, edited, and released all in under two months. And honestly, I'm not sure which of those is more sad. Also, seriously, come on, I called that shit. I even used a bad song title pun. Give me some credit here. And drills through the chest, not the head. Okay, which causes blood spray all over, and thankfully Jeff's last instinct before dying was to slam on the brakes and park the car. That was considerate of him. And the girls run back to the house, because why wouldn't you go back to the only place the killer knows you know? That's... yeah. So Sheila and TJ are still limping around. They see lights on another house, so they go there. Is it going to be the same house? No, oddly enough, I thought it was going to be... So they're banging on the door and screaming horrendously loud screams at full volume. But remember... Yeah, it's this movie universe. So whoever's inside is watching like really loud cartoons, so they can't hear anything. And so, of course, Guitar Drill Guy just happens to show up right then and jams the drill into TJ's chest and finally kills him. So thank God, TJ's dead. And then TJ's corpse is a mere 15 feet from the door. And it still goes unseen by some middle-aged guy who, you know opens the door, looks around, and says, damn, kids, before going back inside. Literally, it's impossible to not see the corpse. Or the guy clad in leather holding a devil-inspired guitar with a giant drill on it. Or the woman running away screaming. But hey, fuck you, audience. They even pan over to TJ's corpse as an extra middle finger to you. Amy and Courtney have moved a fridge, a dresser, something, I don't know. They're pretending it's very heavy, but it's clearly not, in front of a door. And Courtney grabs the phone in this room and asks for the police. But, oh boy, I bet they won't give it. You know, they won't believe her because of earlier. Oh, look, they don't believe her because of earlier. And they ream her for being crazy. They won't even let her finish before they hang up on her. I mean, if anybody lives through this movie, they're going to be set for life because of the lawsuit they're going to be able to fire, file against the police department. Who, who were told, told her, don't call back here again. Yay, cops. So, in anger, Courtney throws the phone against the wall and it breaks because, why? Literally, you can call anyone else. Call your mom. Call Sheila's parents. Call Amy's parents. Sally's. Literally, call anybody. You just broke your only way of communicating with the outside world. Good job. How the fuck did you live through the first movie? Oh, right, yeah, your sister did all the work. Okay. And Sheila hops a wall, and this is uh, probably her heading back to the house guess we'll see maybe she'll make it i don't know also she's acting like her arm is hurt because i guess her arm got hit with a drill even though it didn't get hit with a drill kind of like how tj never actually got hit in the leg but was hit in the leg yeah so courtney is comforting amy who's rocking back and forth even though it kind of seems like you know you figure this might fuck with courtney a bit more seeing as how she's apparently dreamed a murdering rock stereotype into existence that's now killing her friends but instead it's well we'll wait until it's light and then we'll sneak out what the fuck? It's pitch black out. Sneak out now. 
you can't sneak effectively when it's light out because, you know, it's light out. Wow. Okay. Sheila makes it back in and trips into Sally's corpse. Okay, so now I remember a scene in the first one where they wonder if their friend screaming for help is working with the killer, despite that literally never being any evidence of, of that happening. So I think we're about to see something similar here. Sheila is either going to try to get into the barricaded room, and they either won't let her in, or she'll die, and she'll die, or they're going to try to move the thing to let her in, but not before she dies, and then moving the stuff out of the way means the killer can easily get in or something like that. It's, it's going to be one of those things. So Sheila screamed like crazy upon seeing Sally's corpse, rightly so. And so Courtney says, did you hear something? And shuts off the lights in the room while pressing herself into a corner. Okay, so again, one floor away, and unless in this universe they just build shit with those egg carton looking things that soundproof stuff, there's no logical reason that they shouldn't hear that it's clearly a woman screaming bloody fucking murder. But hey, sound bubbles, all right. Sheila runs up the stairs, leaving blood trails everywhere, which Guitar Drill Guy sees, even though that shouldn't matter. Because he's like a room away when she when she screamed. He easily could have heard her screaming. But, okay, then he sees the bloodstains on the wall and looks directly at the camera and says, Now it's time for the fun part, before taking a swig out of a bottle of champagne. What the literal fuck? Now he knows he's in a movie? This villain is all over the fucking place. Pick something. Determined slasher villain. Supernatural slasher villain. Fourth wall breaking slash villain. Just pick one. Stop trying to do everything. You're not doing anything well. Maybe if you focused on one thing, you could have made a semi-decent but forgettable horror film. And instead, you made a completely forgettable horror film that I just happened to find because of the original one. Which I only happened to find because it came up when I typed bad 80s horror movies into a search engine. Yeah. So he flips a light switch, which suddenly makes green and red mood lights light up the room. And rockabilly-type lounge music starts up, because why? Both songs the girls sang were classic 80s style, and this guy's like 50s shit. Why? And then he lights up a cigarette that's been behind his ear this whole time, and it just stayed there despite God knows how much crazy movement. That shouldn't bother me nearly as much as it does because of literally everything else that's happened in this movie. Yet, here I am complaining about it. Go figure. Zoe puts on shades and starts doing terrible dances. Like, legitimately, he just starts doing weird dances from different eras. He even throws in the worm and some breakdancing to 50s rockabilly. Because I guess at this point, you've already paid your $4 to get in, so they don't care if you leave. Also, seriously, I googled it. Average movie ticket price in 1987 was $3.91. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little jealous of that. Because when I was three, apparently you could go see two or three movies for the price of one movie now. By the way, $3.91 in 1987 is the equivalent of $8.62 today. So even accounting for inflation, movie prices have still gone up way too much. Ah well, back to the weird fucking dancing for no goddamn reason. He dances at the camera, throws his sunglasses to the audience. By the way, this is not a 3D movie, folks, so there's like no reason to do that shit for cheap gags. This is is just because I'm betting the writer-director at this point was at the last of their cocaine. So Sheila is wandering down the hallway because apparently a straight line is fucking complicated and he's still dancing and doing stupid shit and Sheila has reached the door and starts yelling for the girls to open up because Amy, Courtney, open up. I can hear you in there. Wait, how? How can you hear them in there? They're literally not making any noise, but you can hear that. But they couldn't hear that it was you screaming downstairs. Or that the guy in the house earlier couldn't hear a brutal drill murder happening. And the killer couldn't hear you screaming 15 feet away. But you can hear two women not making any noise through a door with supernatural killer rockabilly blaring. Okay, I don't care at this point. At least the first movie 
didn't have the sound physics this fucked. So, whatever. They rush to the door, and Drill Guy disappears up the stairs, then jumps back onto the landing to brandish his guitar drill while still dancing. And now he's taunting Sheila by jumping out of the corner, around the corner, into the hallway, and then back onto the stairs, and is now dancing slowly down the hallway. Courtney hears him laugh and is all, oh my god, he's out there. Really? The fucking rockabilly music didn't cue you in? You just now figured it out? Whatever. So, and he's still just dancing around taunting her. Okay, and I went back, I watched this three times to make sure I'm doing the math right here, and I am. One hour, one minute, 43 seconds in, Sheila identifies herself to Amy and Courtney. One hour, two minutes, and 57 seconds in, he finally stabs her in the chest with a drill as the Rockabilly song ends. That's one full minute and 14 seconds for them to push over the thing in front of the door and open it. It doesn't sound like a lot of time, but it is more than enough to do that. But when we look back in the room, they've just gotten to the thing in front of the door and are acting like they can't move it even though they're actually easily rocking it back and forth and they could just lean it one way and it'd fall over. So whatever. So just like in the first movie, the biggest sin isn't premarital sex. It's being friends with fucking morons. And now they've stopped because, you know, Sheila's fucking dead. So, okay. And Drill comes through the door and just slices through it. Like, this isn't a door. It's fucking cardboard. And the Drill hits the thing in front of the door and almost cuts it in half. And then he barely taps it with his foot. And, like, the door and, and the thing just explode open and yeah, these, these girls are city, shitty friends. They could have opened it easily. So he almost says, Lucy, I'm home. But I bet they couldn't have, they could have actually been sued for that. So instead, they, they change it slightly. And the girls run out the window and start crossing rooftops, even though the buildings that we were shown earlier were not that close together at all. And now he's on top of one of the buildings and all of a sudden looking all crazy and playing the guitar drill that's not plugged into anything, nor does it have a battery pack. Whatever. So they're running across the, the rooftops and they climb down off of one building, hopping, hop, hop a low wall like they're running out of the subdivision. Nope, nope, they're still in the subdivision and running in it. Except now it looks like it's a storage facility or something. What? Whatever. Okay, they turn a corner and boom, drill gas swings and it cuts Amy in the face before it hits a wall, sparking heavily. Even, even though it's tore through chest, bones, doors, everything else like that with no problem. And it stops working, which prompts him to say, oh my god. I can't get no satisfaction. Jesus fucking Christ. If I wasn't writing a riff track, I'd be done. Right there. Final nail in the coffin. But there's only about seven or eight minutes left, and I don't want to disappoint you guys, even though that physically hurt me to listen to. Mmm. So the girls keep running while he stands there laughing, and then he starts dancing towards them, magically jumping forward like a dozen or so feet every second. Seriously, that's happening. And they're running into a construction site suddenly. And he's right behind them now. And, and Drill's aiming in the back, cutting her across the back. Because, again, that's how drills work, like knives. So rather than run forward, they start crawling through a low area. And he just walks next to it and starts shoving the drill down at them. But misses every time, somehow. And, of course, Rockabilly is playing. Think, like, Johnny Be Good, but if it was the shittiest song you've ever heard instead of just a catchy, fun song. And he's walking sneakily, stalking them, despite the fact that the drill is going full speed. I mean, I guess that actually does make sense. Not like they could hear him or anything, because sound bubbles. So they're sitting somewhere crying, and he doesn't hear them sobbing loudly. Why would he? But he does see Amy's blood dripping down onto him, so he knows where they are, and his smoke pours around behind him, because goddammit, they rented a smoke machine and they're gonna fucking use it. He drills straight up. Now, if this was Minecraft, that'd be a terrible idea. 
but it's a bad horror movie, so it still doesn't work. But at least he doesn't get lava all over himself, though at this point that would make about as much sense as everything else. So he's dancing around, and the Rockabilly song stopped, and then starts up again, and just when you thought hell couldn't get any worse, am I right, folks? So they run, and literally, even though no one trips or falls on anything, somehow, Amy's now on the side of the building, hanging on for dear life, telling Courtney a lot to let go. I went back a few times and watched this to make sure I didn't miss anything. Nope, the editor did, though. So here comes Drill Guy, who swings the drill up and doesn't hit anyone, but it's enough to make Courtney let go, obviously, sending Amy to her death, probably, I guess? I don't know. And Courtney runs while Drill Guy poses and screams, Let it rock! Let it roll! And then laughs more. And yeah, we see Amy. She did. So more rockabilly while Courtney runs into every single obstacle possible at a construction site. And she stops running and stands still while he stares at her from behind, and she has a flashback to every death in the movie so far, because, I don't know, they had to fill like an extra 20 seconds. So he snaps his fingers like he's about to break out in song. Thankfully, he doesn't. But he does say, Way she broke my heart, she made me cry. So don't you know, she had to die. She had to die. The fuck is even happening anymore? She runs, and the music kicks back in. Okay, I, I liked Rockabilly before this movie, but this this may have ruined it for me forever, honestly. So she makes it back onto the... She, she makes it onto the roof uh, for, of the construction site, because you should always run up to a place where there are literally no exits. And she finds a blowtorch. Okay. Oh, Jesus. Oh, come on, baby, light my fire. That's just disrespectful. I like the doors. Come on. So he says that while looking at her holding a blowtorch, and so, you know, she's like, okay. And she does, and she laughs like he does as he goes up in flames and flies backwards off the building and fade into sunlight. Oh, this is all going to be a fucking dream, isn't it? Paramedics are there taking Amy's body away. How the fuck did they know to show up? Okay, and she stops them to pull back the sheet to look at Amy, who promptly starts laughing like the killer, and boom. Yeah, okay, Courtney wakes up next to Matt. Boy, that was a terrible first time. The sex was so bad that it made her black out, forget the sex happened, and hallucinate a murder spree. She laughs a bit and leans in to kiss him, which goes to a cut of the whole room and then cut back down to her kissing him from behind so we can't actually see Matt. So you know it's going to be the killer now, right? It's going to be the killer, and he's going to laugh, and it's, he's going to like roll credits, and literally nothing will be explained, and the whole movie's just a giant fuck you. And yep! Black leather, gloved hand starts uh, starts grabbing the back of her head while kissing, and it's the killer who says, I love you! And then she screams, and then suddenly it's Valerie waking up in the mental institution screaming, and and then a drill comes up through the floor while while we hear her screaming and, and cue the laugh. And Okay, so we, we see a supernatural killer. Was this all in Courtney's head? Was this all in Valerie's head? Did anyone actually die? Why the fuck did they make this piece of shit sequel? How the fuck did they ever get funding to make a third one? Is there really a third one? Yes, there's really a third one. Why is there a third one? What the fuck just happened? No one knows because that's it. That's end. That's the end of Slumber Party Massacre 2, which sadly was not named The Re-Slumbering. All right. Well, that was Slumber Party Massacre 2, you guys. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I hated it. It was filled with absolute insanity, plot that made no sense at any point, underdeveloped characters, sheer stupidity, sloppy editing, and was just plain awful save for some few music choices, though most of those were honestly just annoying. So, you know, basically, I loved it. That was great. Now, whew. Now, I know how many of you listen. SoundCloud basically tells me about how many people I get per episode and where you're from in a general sort of way. So... 
chances are there's around 30 to 40 of you listening right now. So, hi. Do me a favor, please. If you have Twitter, go find me on there and follow me. Would really love it if you tweeted at me too, but hey, following, following would be great. If you're on Facebook, find me on there and like the page. Shoot me a message on there, post on the page, anything. Remember, the word horror, the number four, the letter H. And some of you I know do this, and it's super appreciated. If you know anyone who loves a good riffing or bad horror, preferably both, fill them in. Give them the Twitter feed or the Facebook page. I post links to the newest episodes on there. Spread the hilarity to those you love. Or hate. I mean, hey, if you hate someone and they don't like this sort of thing, then torture them by sending them to me. I'm not picky. All right, well, I'm off for now. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed it. Take care, everyone.